Hey, y'all, and welcome back to Liberation Bible Study. This is the place where we reconnect to the deep roots of resistance and liberation that biblical texts offer. I'm your host, Alex Patton McNeil. In this Bible study, we feature conversation partners who bring an intersection of identities as LGBTQIA folks, as people of color, as activists, theologians, or pastors. Today, we are continuing our interactive conversation for those who are tuning in on Facebook. Hello, we're glad to have you. <laughs> but wherever you are or whenever you hear or watch this conversation, I hope it can offer you a moment of respite and reconnection and a space of spiritual nourishment to fuel your well of resilience because boy, we could really use some of that. Today, I am especially thrilled to have Adrian White with me to read Jonah chapter three, verses one through 10 through the theme of repentance. And I'm excited about this special note that Adrian is Morelite's uh, guest preacher this month for our virtual pulpit supply. They will be offering a pre-recorded sermon for Sunday, January 24th. To learn more about that and sign up, uh, check out the link in the comments. And this is a way to help give preachers a break um, in their home churches and have a more light person be part of your pulpits. This week also kicks off our lectionary adjustment, which sounds very official. From here on out, we're going to be reading the lectionary text for the following Sunday to give folks who are preparing to preach a bit more lead time, just like Adrian is preparing to preach for us at More Light. So here we are, we're glad to have you. And before we dive in, we want to introduce ourselves, our name, pronoun, work and identities, because we know that we're always uh, carrying those with us whenever we encounter anything in life, but especially our biblical text today. Adrian, please share with us more of who you are. My name is Adrian. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I am currently a second year MDiv student at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Uh, my work includes uh, fundraising, different kinds of freelance writing, and I'm also the seminary resident at Woodland and Eastminster Presbyterian Churches in Nashville for this academic year. Uh, I am white, I am trans and non-binary, uh, bisexual, queer, um, sort of economically stable, uh, which certainly feels like a privilege in this season. Uh, I'm Presbyterian. Uh, if that wasn't a, a given, um, those are some identities that feel important to me. Absolutely. Thank you. And you all know I'm Alex Patton McNeil. My pronouns are he and him. Oh, Adrian, did you say your pronouns? I did. They are they, them, theirs. Great. Same again. Um, okay. My pronouns are he, him, and, uh, and serve as executive director at More Light Presbyterians and identify as a white transgender man and um, live in Western North Carolina. The mountains feel especially important to me in these moments of turmoil, um, the peacefulness that I do find here and living on uh, Cherokee land um, and identify, yeah, as Presbyterian, preached on baptism last week and remember, you know, just acknowledging Presbyterian from birth in my story. Um, so I'm grateful to get to dig into Jonah together. I said that we haven't had Jonah on our Liberation Bible study yet. So um, I'm excited that we get to bring that together today. So let's dig into our first reading. And for those of you tuning in, we um, will read this passage three different times and have a different question that we sit with each time. And the first question that we'll sit with, and we invite you to sit with too, is what do you notice in this passage? What stands out 
the first time we read it through. And we'll have a conversation based on that. So Adrian, I will invite you to read for us first. All right, this is a word from Jonah chapter three and um, officially the lectionary text for the 24th are verses one through five and verse 10, but verses six through nine feel like an important part of the story in our reading and understanding of this theme of repentance today. And so I'm gonna read the whole chapter. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God they proclaimed a fast and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Adrian. As you read it through this time, I'm curious what stood out to you. I am struck by the description of this sort of journey that Jonah goes on. Um, you know, first he has to get to Nineveh, which my uh, little footnotes tell me was quite far from where he started. And then it's a three days walk across the city. Mm. Um, so I think about his sort of march declaring repentance um, and calling for it from others after what he has done and what he's been through. I think that's really interesting. Mm. Yeah, I, I really noticed, you know, if you read what he asked, what he kind of shared with people, uh, it's very, I, I was thinking about it, it's like, that's a tweet. Just 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. Which, as we were talking about in preparing for today, this this uh, story, this part of the story feels almost like Holy Spirit lectionary ins inspiration and um, how relevant it feels in, in this particular moment. And I was really reflecting and, st and struck by the times when 
a simple tweet is enough to get us out in the streets, to get us to repent from something like Black Lives Matter to, you know, our now Twitter banned current sitting president. Um, and how, you know, because I was trying to imagine how would Nineveh repent based on these, you know, 140 characters, basically. Um, he doesn't really say much. Jonah doesn't say much about what why they need to repent, what's going on. They just kind of got it, did it. And um, at first I was skeptical of that. And then thinking about the times in which tweets have launched a thousand movements. Um, and and yeah, just sitting with that a little bit, especially around something like repentance. Yeah, I also, I heard this sort of declaration from the king um, the sort of governing ruler of this territory. Um, and that's the, the piece that is not included in the lectionary is this piece where the king is the one, you know, declaring a fast in case God might change God's mind. Right. Um, which is something that was a common thing in the ancient Near East to think of you know, we can repent and change the minds of, of the gods, um, but was not a particularly Hebrew or Jewish way of thinking about God. And so I thought that was really striking that like from his context, he was like, what can we do to change God's mind about this judgment that is to be visited upon us? Right. Um, yeah, from the king down to the animals, you know, everyone was neither eating or drinking, nor wearing clothes. You know, it's it's very, uh, very extreme. Right, yeah, the decisions, the, the like the, the decision tree to get to the point of, okay, we're gonna do this. He has, the king must hear it. I was really, I was really struck in hearing the story of, you know, Jonah walking across the city. Again, back to my Twitter, don't make me so into Twitter right now, but like, here Jonah is just kind of shouting in the street. If someone were to shout downtown Asheville right now, I wouldn't hear it. Do you know, not necessarily, it'd have, to, it'd have to make its way over to me. And in a large city like that, could he have covered all the territory? So for it to make it to the king's ears, it, it, it must have been repeated and kind of amplified a little- Retweeted as it were. We tweeted as it were. <laughs> and like, to, for him to be able to to catch hold of it, but then to immediately believe it and take action, um, there, there's a lot of steps in between those those kind of key points that I think for a lot of us in the work of a repentance, I know I might be caught dragging my feet about it. It's like, well, it's just this one person. We traced it back to the source. It's just one guy. Is it really? Is it really that serious? You know, um, and and one guy who doesn't have like a great track record <laughs> of obeying God. Yeah. Immediately before this, Jonah had a little date with a whale. Right. Yeah. What does it make you think about repentance?
it's, I just am struck by how simple it makes it seem. We sort of go from zero to a hundred in 10 verses mm -hmm. um, from, you know, proclaim to Nineveh that I will destroy them to they have repented. So I have changed my mind. Um, you know, it starts and ends with God's proclamations. Um, and in this very tight, you know, section in between, like everything changes. Except that Jonah is still kind of a heel because immediately after this, he's displeased that God has changed God's mind about destroying Nineveh. But that's that's another sermon, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jonah's mind is not changed. It yeah. it his behavior changes. So he'll say, "I'm in this whale. Please deliver me for the whale." But I kind of hate you for putting me in here. And then here he is, kind of dragging his feet through the city, like. 40 days, y'all, get it together. And um, and then when they do, he's like, gosh, dang it. <laughs> I really didn't want that to go well. Um, so he's changed some of his behaviors, but not his mind, which I think is a really interesting juxtaposition maybe around repentance that I think sometimes we view repentance as chiefly a behavioral change, mm. but how shallow that can feel when your mind does not follow. And also how that behavioral change without a change of mind and spirit can be very temporary. Um, speaking of tweets, again, I think of the sort of thoughts and prayers mm -hmm. rhetoric that so often follows calamities that have, you know, taken lives, destroyed communities. Oh, thoughts and prayers. But what are they thinking and praying about is never clear. Mm. Um, because it, it never feels like change, real change is what they are thinking of and praying for. Yeah. Yeah. Because as soon as you're thinking and praying that, you can't help but act. Yeah. There has if to it is sincere. If it is sincere, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think this story in a lot of ways is, is meant to show a distinction between those who should know better and do better, Jonah, and the residents of Nineveh who aren't, they aren't followers of this God and yet they receive the understanding of God outside of this kind of traditional faith setting, which again, I think from our queer experiences is a really, I think powerful um, uh, symmetry, I guess. Um, how many times have we had to, I think I assumed that our faith was not within kind of traditional, um, Christianity specifically here in our instance, but I think this is such a clear example of, and it's meant to be a lesson to the Israelites, like, hey, y'all, look at Nineveh. They, they figured it out. Why can't you? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I was, I, um, in doing some background reading, 
was reading, you know, things about how this is fair, sort of generally accepted to have been like a satirical piece, kind of pillorying the the prophets who were less faithful, um, sort of with these extreme examples. And I was fascinated by thinking about like, what is what are the people who wrote this trying to tell us about who God is mm. and who we are called to be in response to that? Like, it's a little bit freeing to not have to worry about like, well, did this really happen? Yeah. Because, because it wasn't intended to have been believed as something that really happened. So we can sort of let that go and say, okay, who is God in this story and who are we? Mm-hmm. And am I Jonah, you know, yelling for repentance and change and then decrying those who seem open to change, but not quite on my timeline or not quite in the way I expected? I think, you know, in progressive movements, they are not all always perfectly welcoming to those who are interested but not convinced. The mm-hmm. sort of that sort of purity testing can be quite harsh yes. um, at times. Yes. Yes. Ooh, because I feel like I hundred percent agree. Um and I feel like there's a question when someone does change their heart or mind around, like there's an identity question for those who've been calling for the change. You know, what does Jonah now need to believe about himself or Jonah's God? Um, if by by their own actions, God changed God's mind. Um, and I, again, I think we've seen that within LGBT faith world as changes have happened, what then, how, how do we need to shift as different institutions or systems and individuals within those have updated their understanding of God and our humanity? It can be really, it can be a really disconcerting experience to be like, oh, it came true, <laughs> it happened. I, so much of our, our identity can be around struggle that it can be disorienting to get what we've asked for because we have not had the space, the time, the resources to imagine an after right. because we've been consumed with the fight. Yes. Yeah. I have to remind so myself I, a lot that abundance can be overwhelming. Yeah. I also, you know, not to read ahead too much, but I just think of, of Jonah rejecting God's leniency toward the people of Nineveh. And I, I have sympathy for it because when you don't believe in your own worthiness Mm. of forgiveness or care, seeing other people receive it is infuriating at times. And I, I, I think he's been through, you know, this 
this calling which he rejected and this storm and this fish and he's walked for days proclaiming God's wrath and then he has witnessed God's forgiveness and he still does not know that he might claim it yeah. as well yeah that's powerful I mean over and over again in in, in this in this book he's willing to die he's basically like just kill me now i'll be a martyr for this rather than really receive what you're talking about is that that grace forgiveness love care kindness and and it can be a really hard thing to watch someone else receive that when that's something perhaps you didn't even know you were longing for and have just gotten used to the other way of being yeah this makes me feel like we're we're ready for our second reading actually I think that there's some there's some depth to explore in our second question, which is around um, how does this text call us to resistance? And we nuance resistance in two ways. One, we think about resistance in terms of resistance to empire, to status quo. And then also there may be some resistance within ourselves as we hear this text that bubbles up. And that's a really powerful place for the Holy Spirit to work within us, to, to speak. Um, and so if that happens for you, Adrian, or myself, we'll name it and we'll work with it. Um, so I invite that as well. And I'm happy to read it through the second time and um, we'll listen for a word around resistance. Let us listen to Jonah chapter three, verses one through 10. And I'm gonna read from the Common English Bible to get us a slightly different interpretation. The Lord's word came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and declare against it the proclamation that I am commanding you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's word. Now, Nineveh was indeed an enormous city, a three days walk across. Jonah started into the city walking one day and he cried out, just 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on mourning clothes from the greatest of them to the least significant. When word reached of it reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, stripped himself of his robe, covered himself with mourning clothes and sat in ashes. Then he announced, and Nineveh by decree of the king and his officials, neither human nor animal, cattle nor flock will taste anything, no grazing and no drinking water. Let humans and animals alike put on mourning clothes and let them call upon God forcefully and let all persons stop their evil behavior and the violence that's under their control. He thought, who knows? God may see this and turn from his wrath so that we may not perish. God saw what they were doing that they had ceased their evil, evil behavior. So God stopped planning to destroy them and God didn't do it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Resistance. Resistance. Vision for the work of resistance.
the the first thing that came to me when I heard you read it again was the tiniest change of preposition mm. from the NRSV translation that I read to yours. Uh, in the NRSV, it says, proclaim to it the message. And the CEB says, proclaim against it. Mm. Um, and, you know, Hebrew prepositions love to mean like 90 things each. So I think the question of, of such a simple word in this, in this version, it starts out adversarial. Proclaim against the Ninevites this message. Um, whereas the, the NRSV translation is a little more neutral and not to like nerd out about grammar, but I just am thinking about how shocking it is to, to me that the Ninevites heard this adversarial message and instead of resisting or fighting back, they were like, oh, seems right. We believe God. Um, this sort of immediate heel turn toward a different God, a different way of living. It, it also made me want to know, like, what, what kinds of evil deeds and violences were they doing? Like, was this just sort of run of the mill, like, sort of not great behavior? Or was it like a city of like, constant calamity and destruction and, you know, rape and pillaging? And mm. I wish we knew more about about what they were doing that they were repenting of. Yeah. Simply because I think part of the work of resistance and, and change is real acknowledging of harm. I think that's something that our activist movements today are very clear about. Um, that, you know, that the first step in repentance is naming the harm that's been done. Right. And so I don't feel satisfied by the sort of general label of like evil deeds. Right. Um, yeah. Especially because I don't know anything about like the Assyrian like moral codes. And so like what would have been considered evil deeds in the Ninevite context. Um, so that's a knowledge gap that I'll just recognize. Yeah. It's interesting. yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes me think, and I think that's really a powerful noticing it's almost as if Jonah's walking into the city and, sa and saying, you know, you know why you're evil. And if I'm thinking about this, this book, this text, specifically as not a real life event, but as a message, almost a parable to the Israelites, perhaps the you in you know is the Israelites know, which is the Assyrian empire constantly you know was a constant threat and like a big huge empire for this smaller um system and so perhaps they knew israelites knew they were evil because they were so big they were they were constantly threatening to overcome and perhaps there were some very evil deeds that happened as part of that threat um and so it's like we know how evil they are and to have this evil or, or, you know, pig-headed <laughs> or like big community suddenly turn on a dime 
I think there's a there's something about resistance. It's also about disruption and disrupting. I think the best forms of resistance or most effective forms of resistance to me disrupt what we understand or believe to be true about someone else or something else. And so this text itself is a disruption um, around how you how you think about another culture. And we've gotten a couple of comments. Um, and Antonia um, asked one question of what morning clothes the animals would wear, which I love. Um, and then uh, uh, another uh, deeper question of interesting that the Ninevites listened to someone from out of their community. Um, exactly, this is a stranger, very a strange man who just came out of the belly of a whale. Literally just walking through town. I, the image that you drew of like, if someone were just like marching through downtown Asheville, I think is very apt because that's kind they of do. what it, what it seems like. Yeah. Um, and this is the second conversion story in this very short book of Jonah, because previously uh, the Gentiles on the boat that he's on, that's being rocked by the storms, which is what gets him ejected. Um, like believe that it is Jonah's God that has brought the storm and they have their own storm God. Um, you know, the ancient Near Eastern traditions had lots of different gods of storms and, and the seas. And so there was much they could have attributed to, but they, they believed that it was Jonah's God. And they were like, okay, well, we're gonna, we're gonna go with your guy, but then we're gonna, I mean, not to call God a guy, you know what I mean? And we're gonna, um, throw you off this boat so that, God will chill out and we can continue on our journey. Although at this point, they've like also thrown all of their supplies overboard. So hmm. uh, the last, the last drop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you're right. Um, another conversion story. Right. So twice. So like what makes Jonah so powerful that even as he is disobedient, he is able to so quickly convince others of who God is. Yeah. That's a good question. And we have another one from Jesse, um, which is, it's interesting that the king is one of the first to repent. How does leadership impact the people's ability to change? Um, yeah, and um, a comment that perhaps it's not Jonah that's powerful, it's God who's powerful. But I also think in, the, in this image of God's power, we also see a God who, whose mind is changed, who isn't so fixed about someone and their identity that God will <laughs> quite literally just throw them overboard <laughs> to die. Um, and I think there's a related thing here of what, what is so fixed in the Israelites' minds about Nineveh, about in, in Jonah's mind as well, kind of as the stand-in that needs to be changed. Because I think there's a message in this text of God's mind's more expansive than your limited concepts. Which thinking in, in terms of queer community, I mean, the thing that I hold on to and that allowed me to recognize that a queer Christian was not an ontological impossibility was that God was so much bigger than the stories I had heard, that God could be many things 
all at once and that God was big enough even for me mm. um, and my, you know, broken embodied life. And I think the, the king seems to buy in. Um, to go back to, to Jesse's question, like the sort of role of, of the leader in setting the tone, um, I think about the COVID pandemic and the ways that cities and there just there was a direct correlation between places where leadership stepped up, said we're going to do these mask mandates, we're going to distribute PPE, we're going to make sure that people have what they need to be secure, and places that did not do those things. And then you look at the map of where you know cases rose more quickly, where the devastation has been more severe, and the power of, of leadership to set a tone about who we will be as a community. Um, and the way that sometimes it's like the, the leader sets a certain tone and there is resistance to it. Mm. And that happens not to set up a binary, but it sort of happens in both directions. Right. Um, we're so reactionary so much of the time to so it's almost like no matter in our in our modern context, like no matter what a leader says, there will be people who say, yes, we will do that. And there will be people who said, we are going to do the opposite of that because you can't make me. Right. Um, and so this sort of unified response of the Ninevites with the leadership of the king feels far-fetched it that that makes the the sort of farcical nature of the story feel like yeah that would never right. happen in quite that way because there would be resistance to such a decree no matter who made it and no matter what right. it was right right which i do think jesse again has a point around repentant repentance may be easier when done collectively where community provides the accountability for that. And I think that's a really powerful noticing. And again, going back to the text around this story is not for the Ninevites. This story is for the Israelites who collectively are called to repent and change behavior and not get so complacent. And this kind of, they've got, I think like what the text is saying in some, in some regards is Israel's gotten complacent and just going through the motions, not really, uh, kind of having the spirit, soul, embodied practice that I think God is calling them and us to. And so here's an, a story of a community that has, they don't really say what they believe, but but the depth of their actions is so powerful that even the sheep and the, the cattle are going to be in mourning clothes, which I too would love to see. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I, I think that there's something in that around around resistance and the work of resistance that if we're working for a collective, either resistance or repentance, that I, I think there has to be like a central core of 
of deep belief that this is possible, that this will happen, that perhaps we could forestall X outcome if we do this. Um, and maybe on the fringes, some people are just like, yeah, I'm showing up, I don't know why. I hope it gets better, I don't know. But at the, at the depth of the core there, like the center of that belief will hold. Um, And I, this makes me think about the, the persuasiveness of Christian nationalism, the effectiveness of the conspiracy theories that are driving so much of the right-wing resistance at this moment. But they are just as convinced that their truth is righteous as we are. Yeah. So so I'm imagining Nineveh and Jonah is wandering through town proclaiming that in 40 days God will destroy the city. Unless they repent seems to be sort of a parenthetical assumption mm. because the text doesn't have Jonah telling them 40 days unless it's just you've got 40 days. Um but they see a path to resistance, to, to repentance, I mean, in that message. But imagine Jonah walking through town proclaiming this, and then somebody else, also a stranger, seeming damp, walks through town the other direction proclaiming, no, 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 do more evil. Yeah. Like, be more harmful to the people around you. Um, and how would the story be different if there were two messages that people sort of felt like they got to choose between? Mm. That makes it a lot harder, except that they are, they're just flipping from one, one story, their, their story to the story of Yahweh. Um, mm. But it's, yeah. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine the message that we might proclaim knowing that so many are so deeply engaging with a different message to even know what to say. I don't, I don't feel like that was super coherent because I'm really struggling through it. So I'll try to, uh, no, no. Neaten that up later. <laughs> no, but I think it's a. I think it's a really interesting. I think it's an, impo an important point we have to wrestle with. And I was noticing as you were naming that that what Jonah says, forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So in some ways, the king and others are repenting to maintain power. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> but <laughs> I think 
but what the king says is let's let's change sorry my son sunlight's coming in um let's change this so we might live the king is not talking about maintaining power necessarily but maybe he wouldn't um but so that we can we can live not perish um Mm -hmm. and i agree that I think God knows their hearts and minds. So if they didn't truly repent, then maybe God's heart wouldn't have been changed. Um, so I think even back to organizing, if we think about it, part of the way we help people change their minds is, is this appeal to their best interest? Is this appeal to something familiar and shared some shared values, particularly in the work of um, the faith work we did around, you know, LGBT inclusion, a lot of it was in, in conversation about what do we both love about this church? What do we both see God's um, understanding of, of God's children, of baptism, like the things that we, that we share. Um, and yeah, to Jesse's point, there is always a little bit of self-interest in everything we do. Um, and we can't pretend that isn't true. So perhaps, uh, Jonah actually is kind of an effective organizer, <laughs> dare we say. Um, yeah. But I agree with you, Adrian, around, I think again and again, in terms of resistance, I think we have to interrogate for ourselves. What is the meta narrative we're believing in and what does it lead to? And, you know, a metric is around like, does it lead to greater justice and liberation, not just for me, but for all peoples, particularly those marginalized. Um, and, and, and what do we do when, like we believe we have the word of God on our side, and then we see pictures of Jesus saves signs lifted up at the stampede of the Capitol in an attempt to overthrow a democratic election of a president for a violent imperialist nation. So like who, we believe in one God and yet sometimes I feel the need to distance myself from the people who call upon the same God that I do because the God that they know does not feel familiar to me at all. And that just makes everything more complicated. Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like Christian moral authority is totally compromised on so many levels. Mm -hmm. And this is one hmm yeah and if this text had an answer for us to me it's that holding in one hand conviction not certainty of principles and beliefs and this deep unknowing who knows the king says god changes god's mind this is where like the spirit of reformation and ongoing revelation is so powerful that what I believed five years ago about justice and liberation 
thankfully has gone through some system updates. <laughs> you know, like I, I've added to that knowledge. I've de- deepened that, that understanding and conviction and calling. Um, and so I think, I think uh, someone put a point, uh, Antonia also made the point about when, when new, new folks come on the scene in terms of our justice movements, kind of feeling sometimes like, where have you been? Um, welcome. But I think there's also something for us maybe have been with it a little longer to, to say, well, my understandings have changed too. That we're all in this ongoing, ongoing reformation of our beliefs, our values, our understanding of the breadth of God's justice. Well, and I, you pointed out the, the translation of the king saying, who knows? And it makes me think of the, the Black women led abolitionist movements. People ask, well, what's gonna replace our current systems of policing and punishment? And the response is not, here's our 50 point plan that can be implemented universally and perfectly. It's kind of like, who knows? But what we are doing now cannot stand. We must change. And so even if we can't see the future, we must move toward it because otherwise we will perish, all of us. That's right. I think that- Probably is taking, yeah. To our third reading. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. Right on time, spirit knows, it's time. so let's move into our third reading. And, and in our third reading, we, we listen for what vision for the work of liberation this text offers. And Adrian, I'd invite you to read it through for the last time so that we can sit with that. Again, a word of God from the NRSV translation in the third chapter of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk And he cried out, 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. 
when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways. God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is a word of God. Thanks be to God. Where did you see a vision for the work of liberation? The first thing that stuck out to me is a place where I don't see a vision of liberation. Great. And that is in restriction mm. and self-harm and punishment as a path to liberation. Um, this sort of extreme fasting, denying water even to animals I think is, a, is an approach to repentance and forgiveness that we can leave in the seventh century BCE. Yes. And not bring with us. Because I think we, we do, there is this tendency to like towards self-punishment, self-flagellation and self-restriction as a path to redemption And I don't think there is hope in that, especially for people who are marginalized, who are cut off from parts of society, who are restricted already. Yeah. yeah. I just wanna to say to that, because Jonah doesn't prescribe a response. How must you respond? All of this is shorthand. And so the community responds in the way they know how, in the way they've always done it. And God doesn't really intervene to say, don't do that. But again and again, Jonah does the same thing. I'll suffer first. I'll be thrown overboard. Um, I'll go sit in this hot sun and wait till Nineveh um, is overthrown. But I, I agree with you that that is, that is not a vision for liberation. It feels, it feels deeply without imagination to say the way that we repent is through suffering. And yet, oh, I'm also thinking about the way that we desire suffering and punishment for those that we see as needing to repent. And then I feel like, well, I have to interrogate that instinct, don't I? Because if it is not a path to liberation for me, then perhaps it is not a path to liberation for anyone. And I, I am seeing uh, Amy Kim's comment about needing to interrogate the ways that we write off the possibility that people can change and redemption is possible for those we abhor. So kind of the next level from what Antonia mentioned about, you know, when people are coming into activist movements from kind of maybe a neutral, neutral, right? But people coming into active anti-racism, for example, from a place of sort of generally thinking racism is bad and that's where their work stops. It's one thing to see a path to repentance for the people that we see as joining our side but then there are those that we abhor, those we see as harming us 
and our communities and the communities that we are dedicated to. And it is a lot harder to wish that they might truly change. Like maybe I kind of wish they would get thrown into the sea <laughs> right. and not spit back up on shore um, rather than being, you know, redeemed in their hearts. Okay. I think I'm, I'm cynical enough to just, it's hard to, it's hard to even imagine that. So it's hard to hope for it. Mm. Yeah. Which again, takes me back to Jonah sitting in the sun, being furious that God has redeemed Nineveh. Yeah. 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 It, oh, okay. You named some really powerful things. So I, I want to respond with a couple of things that I'm noticing. I think that there's, there's a difference between calling for self-harm and calling for deep confession. Actual repentance is naming the harm that has already transpired rather than inflicting yet more harm, continuing the cycle of trauma and abuse um, on your own body or in your community. So can repentance, can a vision for liberation be more along the lines of restorative justice? Something that, well, what if the king said, wow, we've really done a lot of harm here. Let's, let's get engaged in a practice of restorative justice. Instead of refusing to water our animals, what if we sit down and heard exactly what it was the transgression had been so we can make sure that we're actually working to transform ourselves and our, and our practices. And I almost read in this text, instead of they threw a fast, they, they proclaimed a feast. Like what would it have been like of let's throw a feast so that we can all come together and make sure no one goes hungry, that the evil things that have been committed within this city can change. And I think it's connected to the work of imagination and, and just naming, just underlining what you said around, you know, in this work of, of prison and police abolition, I think those of us who, who hope for and believe in that also have to be aware of when it is I'm trying, I think, oh, they should go to jail. They should go to jail for the rest of their lives, et cetera. And so like, I want the very thing for someone that I am against for so many. Um, and that's a real- Bermeline, the, the Black trans woman activist, abolitionist says, talks about abolishing the cop in your head and your heart. Um, which I just wanted to interject because it feels very resonant. Absolutely. Yes, 100%. Um, so I think perhaps a vision for the work of liberation, kind of building on what you named as the anti-liberation, um, is related to what happens when someone calls us out or in about a behavior or a belief or an action that has been harmful to others. Is our tendency to spiral self-shame, put on our sackcloth and ashes because it deflects from the actual work of interrogating what, what really is wrong and sitting with the uncomfortable harm that we've caused? 
because I do think there is, we can't get to liberation without something like deep confession, deep repentance. But there's a whole nother way to imagine what that looks like. I'm smiling because when we first when we were prepping for this and, and you talked about, okay, repentance, the theme. And I was like, wait, did I propose that? Was that, did I say that? Are you getting that from what I said? Because I think that's talking about repentance sounds really scary. Um, because as a queer person, I have been taught to repent of, of what God created. And I, and so I sort of, when I hear people talk about repentance and sin, I bristle mm -hmm. because I am afraid of what they may be talking about. Right. And that it may be a target, not an invitation. Right. And so I'm smiling at imagining confession and repentance as liberatory work because I, it's never, I've never been invited to that before. Mm. And I, oh, I needed it. Yeah. Yeah. Just added in our chat. What if the invitation to repent is from the ways in which you've underestimated how utterly beautiful you are, that we're repenting from believing society's definition of beauty or you know our church's kind of limitations on sexuality um that unearthing uprooting of the toxic systems that have taken hold of us abolishing the cop the shame spiral in our head and our heart yeah I think in, in progressive Christian conversations, we don't, we tend not to talk about sin and confession that much because I, I think for a lot of folks, it's triggering of the harm that has been done to them. Mm -hmm. um, and it can set up dichotomies of who needs to repent and who needs to be the recipient of repentance, as if that's a binary, as if there are only people who do harm and people who are harmed. Right. Um, Miriam Kaba, another uh, abolitionist, talks about this a lot. Um, and, and it's all messier than that. And yet it is all God's creation. And we don't know what God is doing through that exactly right now. And yet, as the king says, who knows? Perhaps, despite it all, we shall not perish. Perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah. I think there's a call in liberation work to the universal and 
and an incitement to act in the particular around the king knew what the king could do in his community and for his people. And maybe it wasn't the best action, the most restorative justice action, but the king did act. And that's something I'm reminded about. I, I think particularly as a white person can get very caught up in what's the right action to take when I sense the need for further liberation or reparation. Um, and I think God faithfully and continually works through us as imperfect people, as imperfect prophets, as imperfect leaders, as imperfect cows and sheep and um, as imperfect city folk that God, I think what God wants for us the least is to go sit in the sun and spit at a community that is trying to do the work and um, noticing in ourselves when our tendency is to want to do that instead because that feels more effective than taking one right step. Or at least more comfortable. At least more comfortable, yeah. So as we begin to close our practice of reading, we're invited to name and consider what's one thing we want to take with us as a result of this reading and conversation? What do you want to keep turning over in your heart? I have, I have two things. One, as I said, is, is imagining confession and repentance as part of liberation for all. And the second, sort of inspired by Amy Kim's question, where we write off redemption for those we abhor, to ground myself in remembering that it is God who redeems. And in fact, I do not have to concern myself with the redeemability of anyone else, or even really myself, because God's got me. Um, and I, I hope that both of those things will, will stay with me. Uh, as, I, as I write a sermon for virtual, virtual pulpit supply, um, and for many days after that. Yeah, and I think mine is um, noticing when I'm more willing to throw myself overboard than do the hard work of relationship. <laughs> because liberation isn't gonna come without the relationship part. Um, and I think the second piece of that is, is believing, accepting, acknowledging that it's not about my goodness, my perfection, my fitness for the task even, that sometimes showing up with your hair wet <laughs> and, your, and your seaweed <laughs> kind of still clinging to your, your skin, um, good work can happen, but you have to show up. You can't run away from that city, especially if that's what you're called to do. Thanks be to God. Yes.
Adrian, I deeply appreciate this conversation and for everyone who commented and, and continued and enriched our conversation, um, thank you. We will be back next week, um, 2 p.m. on the Tuesday and uh, Eastern time. And I just can't wait to receive the sermon that you write, Adrian. I know it's gonna be powerful and speak to our hearts, minds, and spirits that we need. So thank you. Uh, thank you so much for including me and to everyone who is listening in, I wish you peace and every good thing in the days to come. Amen to that. All right, take care y'all. <laughs>